Uh, well, welcome to this. I think this is my favourite lecture theatre in the entire university. Um, who likes this lecture theatre? Yes. I had legal institutions in 1984 in this lecture theatre. I learned most of what I know in this lecture theatre. Uh, it's also air-conditioned. Can I say that, in fact, I think most le lecture theatres in the university at the moment are not air-conditioned. Yesterday was more like a sauna than any other building. We, we had 200-something people sitting in that theatre at, uh, at um, the Eastern Avenue complex, and it, it smelled. It stank. It was wet. But here we're in glorious comfort because the arts faculty is so well-funded by the university. <laughs> Uh, personal integrity is a big, big issue, isn't it? Personal integrity. Just this week, we've seen played out uh, on every media outlet possible the significance of the question of integrity. An openly homosexual High Court judge was accused under the safety of parliamentary privilege of trawling for what is euphemistically called rough trade. Underage rent boys along the wall at Darlinghurst and using Commonwealth-funded expense accounts uh, to do so, opening him up to the possibility of corruption and bribery. His integrity as a judge was at stake, so much so that if the charges were proved, he would almost certainly have been dismissed. The integrity of the Senator, equally, who accused him was at stake. Does he have a single shred of evidence or has he made the accusations rather on the basis of nothing more substantial than a personal crusade? And in the event, it was Heffernan's integrity that has been shot to pieces, uh, hasn't it? So he's gone. He's uh, been sacked from his position. He's been ordered to apologise. He did that yesterday. Uh, everyone, his colleagues, uh, Kirby, the Parliament, the Prime Minister, the Australian people, he apologised to everyone there was to apologise to. And now they're calling for his uh, head and for him to uh, resign as a senator altogether. Imagine attacking the integrity of God himself. That God himself has not acted justly or rightly. That his character is flawed. That he can rightly be attacked and impugned. Imagine attacking the integrity of God himself. Of course, that's what happens all the time, isn't it? That's what happens all the time as people say that God is careless of evil. That he's impotent in the face of all the wicked things perpetrated by wicked people, that is untroubled by the personal disasters that make their way into your life and to mine. And maybe from time to time, you have questioned the integrity of God. You have actually asked the how come with a bit of a wagging finger towards God. God's integrity, God's righteousness, is Paul's issue in Romans 1-4. to And his is a defiant vigorous defence. God is righteous. God does it right and he has conclusively demonstrated that fact. In the act of raising Jesus from the dead and making him Lord, that is, in the act which is the gospel, God has once and for all revealed his righteousness. He's publicly manifested the fact that he is a person of integrity. Now, from chapter 118 to chapter 320, we looked at it last week, Paul has opened up that simple point uh, and explained it in terms of uh, the issue that we all want to know about, actually, that God has revealed his wrath against all the ungodliness and wickedness of those who suppress the truth by their wickedness. 
that God has not just ignored it, that he's not just swept it under the carpet, that he's revealed his wrath from heaven because he has made Jesus Lord. And when Paul says all, he really means all, okay? Against the pagans, those who have given themselves to idolatry. In the old days, totem poles. These days, what? Cars, houses. Those who have given themselves to idolatry and hence God has given them over to a debased mind and a debased life. To hypocrites who know the mercy of God and sit in judgment on those pagans and yet do the very things that they do with a haughty, uh, judgmental lifestyle. And even on God's very own covenant people, Israel, who so horribly failed in her calling to be the people of God, the people of God given as a light to the nations, a guide to the blind, and yet because of her sin, her persistent, repeated sin, the name of God, far from being lifted high among the nations, has been blessed. God has revealed his righteousness because he's revealed his wrath in making Jesus Lord against all his wrath, against all wickedness. That was the point last week. I hope you got it. Now that really is good news. The fact that God has revealed his wrath, that Jesus is the judge, that really is good news. Uh, I know that you'll find this hard to believe. I certainly found it hard to believe when I found out. But I have an enemy. I have an enemy. It came as something as a shock to me, being basically the fun-loving, peaceable guy that you've come to know and care for. That someone should have set themselves against me. Seriously. Slandering me everywhere except directly. But God has revealed his wrath. God has revealed his wrath. Jesus will judge the secret thoughts of all. So that rather than seek to defend myself, certainly rather than seek revenge as best I can, I love and pray for him and entrust myself to God, the God who judges justly. Okay, that's what this doctrine does for you. It's very, very important. Now, of course, it's precisely on this issue that the kind of pathetic schizophrenia of our culture is so obvious. On the one hand, people complain about the indifference of God, right? Is that a moment of wrath, do you think? <laughs> Against all ungodliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth? No, no, no. Anyone else? Now that's a good moment to turn off your mobile phone. Um, yes, our culture, on the one hand, complains about the indifference of God. Where is God? Is, why does he appear so removed and distant, uncaring, even sadistic, Right? And yet on the other hand, when they hear the proclamation of the wrath and judgment of God, the very wrath and judgment of God which demonstrate his fierce passion to deal justly with wrongdoing, they hate it. They hate it. Where we ended with, uh, uh, at the end of last week, was with those, that litany of verses from the Old Testament, the, the Torah, the law. Kind of like a Mike Tyson flurry back in the good old days when Mike knew what he was doing. Uh, or if you're not into violence... Uh, as I'm not, uh, an Adam, Gilch uh, Adam Gilchrist onslaught, if you prefer a thing of beauty. That Old Testament barrage of verses um, which leaves people, and especially those who are under the Torah, that is Israel, absolutely speechless or helpless. Um, it was a long, hard sprint last week, and uh, as we followed Paul through the twists and turns of his argument, and today we slow down a little. We've only got two paragraphs to deal with today, but he's still hammering away at the same point. Chapter 3, verse 21. And it'll help if you have your outline open. Deal with all the other bits of paper. Because I've, I've, I've gone to town on the setting out of verses to help, it, help make the logic clear. Chapter 3, verse 21. But now, 
apart from the law. The righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God, and on he goes. Notice that the issue is still the righteousness of God, the integrity of God. Although now it's revealed entirely independently of the law, or it's not quite entirely independently of the law, the Old Covenant Scriptures, um, since the law and the prophets actually testify to this revealing of the righteousness of God. And the fact that this is Paul's point is confirmed by verses 25b and 26. You see there, I've included them there. Um, at the end of the paragraph, there are two references to the righteousness of God being proved, which balance the two references to the righteousness of God being revealed. Okay, it's a, it's a, it's a balanced paragraph in that way. Um, he did this to show his righteousness, verse 26, verse 25b and 26. It was to prove at the present time that he is righteous. That's the point. God has demonstrated his righteousness. Now notice that verse 26 spells out exactly what it is involved in God demonstrating his righteousness. Uh, here the NIV actually has got a better translation than the new RSV. Um, for some reason the new RSV actually leaves out a clause entirely. You see I've included it there in the square brackets. There are two things involved in God being righteous. One, God demonstrates his righteousness when he shows himself to be just. To be the just judge. And that's what we've seen it in the first couple of chapters. But secondly, God shows himself to be righteous when he justifies people. When he makes them right. When he puts them in a right standing. A rightness before him. Okay, now something very, very important happened there. And I want you to pause and notice and let it sink into the core of your love for God. Part half, maybe even the bigger half of what it means for God to be righteous, get this, is that he is the justifier of people, that he is the saviour. Do you see that? That's what Paul says. Let me turn around the other way to make it perfectly clear. Were God not the one who justifies? Were God to be not the one who saves? Then he would not be righteous. He would have failed the divine integrity commission. Do you understand that? Now the reason I hammer that point is that I think so often we think that the justifying work of God, the saving work of God, is something kind of extra that he just adds on as, a, as, a, as an afterthought onto his resume. Something he didn't really have to do. It's his judging work his condemnation of sin, that's what's at the core of his being, we say. That's what's absolutely essential. But you see what that does to God at that point. We make God's condemning work more central to the character of God than his saving work. And Paul says, no, that is absolutely not true. That is a disaster. God takes no delight in the death of a sinner. His wrath brings him no pleasure as it reaches uh, those whom he has made. But he takes great joy, fist-pumping joy, joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and is saved. Do you understand this? Before God is our judge, he is our creator, our loving, gracious, merciful creator. And he saves. He is the saviour. He is the justifier, not as a bonus, 
not as the free set of steak knives that get added on to what he does it sort of normally, but from the depths of his own righteous character. He saves. Now, it's quite a lot like me with my kids. Um, I'm all for discipline with my children and uh, punishment when they do wrong, especially if they're rude to their mother. Uh, that really makes my blood boil. And um, my righteous wrath reaches out to them in the form of a very fine cover drive. Whack! I'm a, I'm a big believer in whack. Okay? But when they're in trouble, okay, when my kids are in trouble or being given a hard time by another kid. I had a uh, situation uh, at church um, uh, recently uh, where uh, my son was uh, slapped around by another kid, slightly older and bigger than him. Okay? And now, even if he's in the bad books at that time, even if my son, I, I had, we, you know, even if we had a fight that morning on the way to church, I am no less being righteous when I charge into that situation, see my son crying, this big bloke standing over him, all that kind of deal, to make his life serenely happy once again, which is what it ought to be. So he thinks. In fact, you would wonder what kind of father I was if I punished with passion, but I was indifferent to his problems. It is an activity no less of righteousness to save than it is to judge. And we mustn't fall into the trap of thinking that somehow God being the justifier is the extra bit, God being the judge. Well, that's kind of what, what he really has to do. He didn't have to do that other stuff. No, Paul says he's righteous when he shows that he is just and he is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you actually see this point, this exact point, if you take the time to check out the context of the verses Paul quotes in the paragraph immediately prior to this one. Uh, remember, I, I referred to it earlier, Paul is putting the nail in the coffin of Israel's claim to receive special treatment from God at the judgment. Okay, And he has this staccato stream of texts. You can check it out. Uh, they're from Psalms 14 and 53. Psalms 14 and 53, they're almost identical psalms. Um, also from Psalms 5, 140 and 10. Then he moves to Isaiah 59, and then he goes back to Psalm 36. 14 and 53, then 5, 140 and 10, Isaiah 59, and then Psalm 36. Uh, although most Bibles with cross-references will send you off there anyway. Now here's the point. After each one of those texts, which pronounce judgment on Israel, that's Paul's point, what the law says it says to those who are under the law, each one of those texts, after pronouncing the judgment of God on sin, calls on God precisely in His righteousness to deliver His people. Because seeing people helpless is precisely when God kind of comes into his own as the righteous one. Check it out, for example, in Isaiah chapter 59, uh, after, which after the complaint that the wicked are swift to shed blood, that's what Paul quotes in verses 7 and 8 of Isaiah 59, and that there's no righteousness to be had in the world, Isaiah says that that situation, with every mouth stopped, is precisely the situation that God will act in his righteousness. Listen to this. Isaiah 59, verse 16. Speaking of God, or the Lord, he saw that there was no one and was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm brought him victory and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in fury as a mantle according to their deeds so he will repay. I mean, does that ring any bells out of Romans 2? 
wrath to his adversaries, requital to his enemies, that means just revenge, to the coastlands he will render requital. So those in the west shall fear the name of the Lord and those in the east his glory, for he will come like a pent-up stream that the wind of the Lord drives on, this, this flood. And he will come to Zion as Redeemer. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, says the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouths of your children or out of the mouths of your children's children, just in case you thought this was a temporary measure, says the, that wasn't there, says the Lord, from now on and forever. See, that's the law and the prophets testifying to this revealing of the righteousness of God, isn't it? Testifying in magnificent style. That's Romans 1 to 3 right there, isn't it? That God in his righteousness will judge and no less that God in his righteousness will save, will save, will justify. Well, Paul says that is, is, it's a, is, is that God has done this. It's almost like he had it in his mind, isn't it, Isaiah 59? Which he probably did since he just quoted from it. God has revealed his wrath and he's revealed his salvation. He's come to Zion as Redeemer. But, you see, in a radical way, in a radical way, not in re-establishing the old covenant with the Torah, but instead somewhere else. Point two, through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah. Ready? Romans chapter 3, verse 22. The righteousness of God has been revealed, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by His blood, effective through faith. Um, now, there are a number of translation issues which I'm going to bring to your attention. Don't let that worry you too much. Uh, you just have to cope. The righteousness and integrity of God have been disclosed, you see, or literally manifested, have been manifested through, what I'm convinced is a better translation, through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Uh, for those who have studied uh, other languages, I know you don't learn any grammar in um, English anymore. Oh, my goodness. If you've studied other languages, you know there's a thing called a genitive. You know what that refers to the word? That refers to the word of. Okay, so what we're talking about here is the, literally it says the faith of Jesus Christ. Uh, so, a subjective genitive is when the subject is the one who does the faith thing. An objective genitive is where the faith thing is done to the object. Okay, now the way you have it in most Bibles is that we put our faith, to those who have faith, in Jesus Christ and what's called an objective genitive. I want to suggest to you that for a whole host of reasons, which I won't go into, though we can talk about after if you want, it's much better read as a subjective genitive. Um, that is, that it's Christ who does the faithing. Christ who is faithful. In other words, God's righteousness is revealed, you see, through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. What the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, or his obedience in chapter 5 of Romans is going to mean, of course, is his faithfulness to death even death on a cross. Um, it's not a big deal. Nothing much hangs on this, actually. Although I think it does help unlock, in a big way, what Paul is actually driving at. After all, I'll just give you one reason why this is the case. It would be a strange thing for Paul to say that God's integrity 
this great unveiling of the integrity of God, the, the bringing down, here it is, here it is, see the integrity of God, it's behind this, and now it's unveiled. How? By the human act of believing. That would, that would be a strange thing, I think, to say, that it was the human act of believing in Jesus that unveiled God's integrity. Uh, in fact, when I heard this text, Romans 3, 21 to 26, preached on at... Uh, the Moore College Chapel, you may know Moore College, it's a theological college up the road, my alma mater, which I love. Uh, at the chapel service, right, which is kind of like the inner sanctum of all truth. Um, this was the way the Bible was read, uh, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So there's not some wacky theory that I've come up with, this is, this is quite legit. Okay, you see what I'm saying? The righteousness of God is revealed through the faithful obedience of Jesus Christ to death, even death on a cross. And this revelation, this faithful obedience, is for all who believe. For all who believe. And it's, you, because it's not your Bible, you can actually write on it. Underline the all there, right? For all. The, the key word there is all. It's for all who believe, precisely because there's no distinction. Everyone has the same problem. Sin, by which they've fallen short of the glory that God had in store for them. And you hear loud echoes of chapter 1 and creation and, the, and all that kind of stuff, right? That's what's meant to echo. And so just as the same way, there's no distinction with the problem, so there's no distinction with the solution. All. And I think probably the reference here is particularly all types, Jews and Gentiles. Every type of person. Same problem. That's what we've just learned. Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. Chapters 1 and the start of uh, 2 and the start of 3. And they all have the same solution. God's justifying grace. God's gracious justification. Now you see the pattern there. God's righteousness is disclosed or manifested from faith, through faith, from the, from the faithfulness of Christ, for faith, for all who believe. Now does that phrase ring any bells for you? From faith, for faith? You might remember if, uh, back in chapter 1, verse 17. That's literally what Paul says is that the righteousness of God is disclosed from faith for faith. The NIV has, I think, from faith uh, from first to last, which is a kind of an explanation rather translation. Literally, it's from faith for faith. And what I think 3.21 to 26 does is explain that one chapter 1, verse 17. He's saying, here's the righteousness of God. It's disclosed in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And it's for all who believe. For all who believe. Now you'll notice that what Paul does is unpack that with two other through statements. Uh, it's clear in the Greek, it sort of all lines up and it's pretty obvious, although our translations for some reason translate the same word differently and obscure it. You see, I've tried to use indentation to make that clear. The righteousness of God is disclosed through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, through the faithfulness in his blood, literally, at the end of verse 25 there. Now, redemption, the second of those, which explains the faithfulness of Christ and, and its effect for us. Redemption is a big word in the Bible. You hear redemption, bells go off. Okay, Gallipoli is a big word for us Australians, isn't it? When you hear the word Gallipoli, like, you know, you live in um, the Sudan... And you hear the word Gallipoli and you think, what? You live in Australia, you hear the word Gallipoli and suddenly, well, you know, or anywhere else really, um, that was a moment for us as a nation, wasn't it? 
That was a moment. That's come to kind of define us. That's, that says so much about what kind of people we are. Just, just mad mates for each other to die for each other. Heroic causes, which, which, which are kind of crazy, but we still... I mean, so much of what our nation has kind of come to define... Well, that's the Gallipoli word. Redemption. Redemption. Redemption of Israel out of Egypt was every bit, if not more, as defining a word of Israel as a nation, a nation under God. And what Paul is saying here is that through Jesus there has been a new redemption, a new exodus, a new rescue that has taken place from a different dominating power other than Pharaoh. And this time, this redemption is in the good ship, Jesus Christ. Literally, it's a, it's a spatial metaphor. It's, it's about getting into Jesus. This redemption has been in Jesus. In Jesus Christ. A rescue which is the righteous act of the righteous God. Now, Paul doesn't say any more at this point. Often he does this in Romans. He gives you a little hint, and he comes back to it later. In fact, the whole of chapters 5 and 6 are all about redemption. The transfer from one power. This time, it's not just Pharaoh. I mean, Pharaoh is bad. But this time it's the power of sin and evil, this dominating um, um, thief of God's, of God's world, right? And transfer out of that unto, under the, the domination instead of the rule, the reign of grace. So chapters 5 and 6 uh, spell out, we'll come to those later in the semester, uh, with Mike Kwan who's going to speak on those, about the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. The second way he explains what this faithfulness of Jesus Christ is, is literally through the faithfulness of his blood, the faithfulness in his blood. That is, that's a compact little phrase right there, right? In his blood. But it's itself an explanation of verse 25a, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement. And now we're really at the centre of things. Okay, We started at the outside, the top and the bottom was about the righteousness of God. We've come one step in, that's about the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And now Paul is really, he's lifting up the bonnet and we're taking a look at the engine here. This is right at the engine room of God's purposes. God put forward Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. Now, I'm going to give you a Greek word here um, to, so you can impress your friends back home. Uh, hilasterion. Hilasterion is the Greek word for this sacrifice of atonement. It's, it's a big word too. Okay, let me tell you, you need to know three things about hilasterion. Firstly, the word has a literal meaning. Literally, it means mercy seat. Okay, now I can't draw and this will become perfectly apparent now. How do you do perspective? No. <laughs> Whatever. That's a seat. Okay? That's, that's a hilasterion right there. It's a hilasterion. And it's not just any seat. It's a particular seat. The word is used in Exodus. Check it out. Exodus 25, verses 17 and verse 22. You don't need to look up. Exodus 25, verses 17 and verse and 22, where Moses is told how to build the tabernacle, right? The great big portable tent. There it is. It's a big portable tent. On sticks. So they could carry it along. So there'd be, you know, a couple out the front, a couple of hundred Israelites, a big long stick, a couple of hundred out the back because they had lots of them. And they would ch carry this great big tent, like the Queen of Sheba would walk along. Well, guess who was in the tent? God was in the tent. And what was at the heart, the centre of the tent? It was the hilasterion, the mercy seat. 
Now you, you go to Leviticus chapter 16 and God tells Moses what to do with the mercy seat. Okay, particularly on the great day of atonement. The mercy seat was the place where the blood of, check it out, that's a bull. <laughs> Alright? Chop its head off, get some blood on your finger, on the mercy seat. Blood on the mercy seat. Blood on the mercy seat. Leviticus chapter 16. And God says this. This, this you have to do once a year on a particular day. It's like Christmas. I mean, it's not like Christmas. It's kind of like Christmas. <laughs> this shall be a statute for you forever, says uh, uh, God at the end of Leviticus chapter 16. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall deny yourselves, you shall do no work, neither the citizen nor the alien who resides among you. For on this day, atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. From all your sins, you shall be clean before the Lord. You see what happens with a hilasterion, a mercy seat? There are angels all around here with wings and stuff. Okay, angels. Because this was where God sat. Right? That's where God was. And you put blood on the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement and that makes atonement for you. That makes you clean. That cleanses your sin. So you see what Paul is saying? God put forward Jesus as what? As a hilasterion, as a mercy seat, as the place where God and sinful people meet, right here, in such a way that instead of that meeting leading to condemnation and death, it leads to cleansing and peace. That's at-one-ment, literally, atonement. Atonement is just a made-up English word. At-one-ment. Jesus is our hilasterion, our atoning sacrifice, our place of atonement. Atonement, where it happens at the atoning uh, mercy seat. Secondly, the other great text that sheds light on uh, this very, very compact little phrase, uh, the hilasterion, that word, uh, the engine under the bonnet of God's righteous work, is Isaiah chapter 40, right through to 55. That is a magnificent prophecy, Isaiah 40 to 55. That's worth reading, you know, once a month. Just sit down, take an hour, and read Isaiah 40 to 55. Everything is in Isaiah 40 to 55. There's nothing in Isaiah 40 to 55 that's worth knowing. If it's not in Isaiah 40 to 55, it's not worth knowing. Right? It's all in Isaiah 40 to 55. And what's interesting is that that gets to a point which focuses more and more tightly on the suffering, sin-bearing servant. Israel was supposed to be the servant of God, but she'd failed. That's Romans chapter 2, isn't it? And so there's, there's another. There's another servant who's not just going to rescue the coastlands, the, the, the Gentiles. He's going to rescue Israel as well. But he's going to do it. He's going to bring the kingdom of God in, right, by suffering. A number of times Paul refers particularly to Isaiah 53, the fourth servant song, the first song about this servant, which speaks of his suffering. In chapter 4, verse 25, he uses a key word, uh, given up. Chapter 5, 15 and, verse, and, and 19, it talks about the many, which is in Isaiah 53 as well. Chapter 15, verse 21 and 10, 16, he quotes it. In other words, what I'm saying here is that Jesus is a hilasterion, not only in Leviticus 16, but also... Isaiah 53 the servant okay 
Listen to this, Isaiah 53 verse 5. But he was wounded, sorry, it's the, the key, the key in, this, in this chapter is the pronouns. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. By his bruises we are healed. And you can sing at this point if you want. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Ah, that's incredible, isn't it? You can't not feel that. That God should put forward Christ as an atonement for our sins. Um, third, then, let me tell you, what the blood of Jesus does is it both turns away the wrath of God and deals with our sin. Uh, there are two technical words for that, uh, which I'll tell you about. Um, there's propitiation and there's expiation. Just a word on this. Um, it's worth you knowing these things. You're intelligent people. You're not afraid of jargon. Your whole course is all about jargon. Um, and you knowing the jargon means you can participate in conversations when people use the jargon rather than being intimidated and bullied by people when they use the jargon. Okay, So that's why I think it's important for your education that you know the words that, that uh, theologians use so you can participate rather than just get bullied by them. Um, Jesus' blood as a sacrifice both propitiates God's wrath, this is what you do to a person, and it expiates our sin. Expiate just means clears or deals with or wipes away. Both are important. Both are important. Turning away the wrath of someone, propitiating them, but not dealing with the sin justly, we call that corruption. That's a payoff, isn't it? That's a bribe, where you, you bribe someone to sort of be happy with you, uh, if, but not actually deal with the issue. And God has not done that. He's not put forward Jesus as a, as a kind of a payoff, a bribe. But dealing with sin and the stain it causes, that is expiating our sin, without recognising that what is at stake here is real, visceral wrath, that's merely impersonal, as though God were not personally and directly involved. And if there's one thing that's clear from the first few chapters, it's that God takes sin very personally. Now Jesus is our hilasterion, our place of propitiation, our mercy seat, our sacrifice of atonement, in that he does both of these things. He propitiates God and he expiates our sin. Okay, we're winding up here. Paul draws his conclusion in verse 27. It's perhaps not the conclusion that we might draw. He says that if this is the way that God has disclosed his righteousness, if this is the way God has revealed the fact that he is just, namely that, that he deals with sin, he's just, and the justifier of the one who literally is of the, faith, of the faithfulness of Jesus, I think it's probably best how to read that. His question then, first question off his list, you know, top of, top of the list for him is, what then becomes of boasting? What then becomes of boasting? Now, what's at stake here is not boasting as in trying to earn merit before God and, being bo and boasting about the fact that I'm good enough for God and you're crap. Right? That's not what's going on here in, in Paul. You can tell that from verse 29. He says, Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Okay, so the issue at stake is the Jewish boast 
that we alone are God's people. That was what was the use of the word boasting in chapter 2, verse 17. And he says boasting is excluded. Is it, it's excluded. Why? By what law? By the law of works. That is by the law of those works from the old covenant which set aside the Jewish people, circumcision and food laws and uh, Sabbath days and so on, so that you could barely even be in the same room as other people who were not of your kind of group. No, he says not by the law of works, but by, and this is like putting two magnets together, ready? The law of faith. And, and your head's spinning right there because you think, what, you, what, you, what is this law of, what is the law understood in terms of faith? Now again, this is one of those points where Paul doesn't explain further. In fact, it takes into chapter 10, verse 4, before he comes back to this issue and says, the law, the Torah, the old covenant law, always was pointing towards Christ. The faithfulness of Christ. That's what I think he means here, the law of faith. And his knockdown argument that this is the case, that it's the law of faith, that Christ has fulfilled the law in his faithfulness. That's what excludes any kind of boast on the part of the Jew. Is in verse 29. Is, it, is God the God of the Jews only? No, he's the God of the Gentiles. For God is one. That's a sentence that Jews said every morning and every evening. They got up, they made their cup of coffee, they had the cornflakes and they said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's called the Shema from the Hebrew word to hear. Hear, O Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It's like the John 3.16 of the Old Covenant. Okay? It's just, it's that big. And, uh, and Paul says, Is God the God of the Jews only? No, He's the God of all people because there's one God. And so he justifies all people precisely in the same way, namely through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. This, in fact, doesn't overthrow the law. It, it marginalizes, relegates it, but in fact it fulfills the law, which is precisely what he goes on and demonstrates from chapter 4. And we'll come to that at the end of the semester. Let me draw some very quick conclusions. Four of them. Firstly, you cannot read this passage... You cannot read this passage and in any way understand it and not love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Look here at the love and the mercy of God, the pure, unmerited gift from Him that He should give His only Son at the ultimate cost, the cost of His life, the sacrifice that sets you free, that redeems you, that propitiates God's wrath that brings peace. Look at the towering integrity of God, dealing with sin justly, saving his people miraculously, fulfilling his covenant faithfully. If you are not a Christian here today, then can I say, don't settle for the trivial drivel that goes for so many criticisms of the Christian faith. They have no idea. This is the Christian faith. This is the God of the Bible. Deal with him. Here is a God who deserves and even demands your love and your faith. And if you are a Christian, let your love be rekindled and burn incandescently. How could it be otherwise? Secondly, the second paragraph here particularly, which we didn't have a lot of time to deal with, demonstrates conclusively that there can be no dividing walls of hostility between Christians. There is one God. God is God of all people, therefore... And although we might exist in different denominations and gangs, that can only ever be a secondary thing to say. I'm a Christian first, with daylight second, 
and an Anglican way, way behind that. And you all go, Amen. Right? I'm a Christian first, with daylight second, and an evangelical way, way behind that too. And you need to hear that. And you need to know that that is the, the, uh, the reality if there is one God. Sure, there may be other Christians around the world who differ from you, but you are their pers- their, theirs, brother or sister, and they are yours. And under God, there is one God and one people of God. That's what Paul is saying, you see. That's why he says all this stuff to the Roman Gentile Christians who are being tempted to divide, right? Who are being tempted to say, no, you, you Jews, you, you stop. And Paul says, no, uh, it's true that God has judged Jews. That's right, but don't you be anti-Semitic about it. God has judged them precisely the same way he judged you on the basis of sin. And so God is able to save them in precisely the same basis that he saves you on the basis of Christ. Thirdly, reading the New Testament. I hope you've been kind of challenged to read Paul a little bit differently. Um, I've set out in the table here what I think the real issues are, and I just want to highlight a couple of things from that. Firstly, notice that Judaism and Paul share the same starting point. That the necessary cause, the only possible cause of salvation is the grace of God. That's the Old Testament. That's the Old Covenant. Always was, always will be. When Paul says law or works of the law, he's not dealing with the question of attempting to earn merit before God. That's just not what's at stake. That's particularly clear in this passage since Paul answers his question, do we overthrow the law? Which if it was about earning merit, his only answer to that could be what? Of course. His answer to his question, do we overthrow the law, is no, of course not. Of course not, by no means. The problem was not Israel trying to keep the law. The problem was Israel not keeping the law. So the issue at stake in Paul so often is not in respect to the cause. It always was grace. Though it's now grace focused not in the Old Covenant and election in the Old Covenant, but grace focused in the blood of the Messiah. Nor can I say, is what's at stake for Paul the necessity of evidence. Paul maintains the necessity of evidence of your reality of being in Christ just as much as his Jewish heritage. And so he'll speak about judgment on the basis of the evidence. We saw that last week. But the real issue is in regard to the instrument and the nature and content of that evidence. It's not the, not the commandments or the works of the law anymore. The instrument is faith. We put our faith in Jesus. And the evidence is walking according to the Spirit. Where does Romans 5 to 8 go? Exactly down those lines. That it's the Spirit who links our present justification and our future judgment. Finally, next week. Next week, we have an opportunity for as many people as possible to hear this word, this message of the wonderful righteousness of God. It won't be this talk. This is not the talk you kind of you give to an event, uh, you know, an opportunity week. Uh, it'll be the same material, but in a different form. Can I ask you to sweat for that meeting next week? Really sweat for it. Pray that God would work through a feeble instrument like me. Pray that God would work through feeble instruments like all of us. Pray that as you. Uh, invite people, your invitation would find a receptive heart. Invite people till it hurts. Invite people till it hurts. And make sure that you yourself are not here, but back over in uh, uh, Stephen Roberts, to be part of what we hope will be a great occasion, as people hear this word of the gospel, that Jesus is Lord, the saving Lord, their Lord, and turn and are born again that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you in great wondrous righteousness have 
given your own son put him forward to be the sacrifice for our sins um, what amazing love and we pray that you would so fill our hearts and our minds and our wills with this that you would take us and use us as we seek to bring others to you also particularly next week Lord glorify yourself on this campus we pray in Jesus name Amen